Acts 24. So when we closed last week, Paul had been sent to Caesarea. That's the capital. Been in Jerusalem. There were some charges brought against him that he was desecrating the temple. There was a riot. The mob tried to kill him. Then he was brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the 70 ruling elders of the temple. And there was they tried to kill him there. There was another riot. And so this guy named Lysias, who's the highest-ranking Roman official in Jerusalem, he's a commander of a 1,000 troops, he rescues Paul, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And in his trying to figure it out, he, he catches wind of this plot. These 40-something Jewish men say, we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. And so for Lysias, that's, that's the last straw. Paul has asserted his Roman citizenship, which then makes Lysias responsible for his fate. And so it's too much for him. And so he says, We're, I'm, just, I'm going to kick you up the food chain, kick you up the ladder. He sends him to Caesarea about 60 miles north of Jerusalem in order, one, to keep Paul safe, because that's Lysias' primary objective. Uh, it, again, comes back on him if something happens to Paul. And two, he hasn't made any headway in figuring out why exactly the Jews are so mad at Paul. And he's hoping his boss can do that. So Paul is now in Caesarea, and he's going to stand trial before the governor of the province, and his name is Felix. And that's where we're going to pick up chapter 24, verse 1. This is a formal legal proceeding here in chapter 24, and this is the cliff note version of what happened. Five days later, so that's five days after Paul uh, arrives in Caesarea, The high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So Ananias is the chief priest. We said last week he's a wicked guy. Uh, the Jews don't really even like him that much. They kill him. They kill their own priest a few years from now because uh, of his behavior. But he is the highest-ranking Jewish official, so he's there with some of his top-ranking folks. And they bring a lawyer because, again, this is a, a formal proceeding. Uh, all of that stuff at the beginning, that's normal flattery. That's how these them. So you get through all the flattery, which does exactly what you think. It's just try to make Felix more favorably disposed to their case. They give present three charges against Paul. One is that he literally is a pest. That's the word. Paul's a pest, which for us seems that's what you call like a five-year-old. But for them, that's a serious charge because what they're saying is he's leading revolts and revolutions and uprisings. And for these Roman officials, their primary responsibility was keeping the peace. At any cost, keep the peace. And if there was not peace in their area... They could be removed or worse. And so for them, for, for this lawyer to say Paul's being a pest, it's a code word. He's causing, he's fomenting revolution. He's causing uprisings. And that may land on your desk 
Felix. This ultimately is your responsibility because it's happening in your province. If word gets out that Paul is doing these things, it, it's, it's going to land on you. And then he said he's a leader of the Nazarene sect, which is true. That's the only time Christianity is referred to that in the Bible. Um, but what the, the Jews are trying to do is they're trying to link Christianity with uprising. So what they're trying to do is extend things beyond Paul and say this is a dangerous movement. This is a dangerous faith and y'all need to squash it. They're trying to make, make it so that uh, Christianity is illegal in Rome. And then they say, and he's also desecrated the temple. Uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago that he brought a Gentile into the sacred courts, which is punishable by death. And the hope there is that's one area where the Romans said the Jews, y'all can handle your own justice. So if someone desecrates the temple, we'll let y'all adjudicate that. We'll let y'all figure that out. And the punishment for that was death. And so the Jews just want to kill him. We said that last week. They're not interested in the truth. They just want to kill Paul. And so if, if Felix finds, yes, you've desecrated the temple, then he's going to turn him over to these guys. And they're going to take him back to Jerusalem and kill him. So the charges, although they may seem minor to us, are actually serious for both Paul and for Christianity in general, Paul's defense, verse 10, when Felix motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing, arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They can't prove to you the charges they are now making against me. That's the crux of Paul's defense. He's saying it's a he said, they said. There's no proof. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That'll be the key sentence for us. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It's concerning the resurrection of the dead. That I'm on trial before you today. So again, Paul's defense is basically they don't have any evidence. They've just made these charges against me, leveled these charges. There's no proof. My word against theirs. I've only been in Jerusalem for two weeks. I haven't drawn any crowds. He says it's true. I do. I am a follower of the way. I am a leader of this group. But that's really it's just a difference of belief. I I, I believe the Old Testament, just like these guys do, they have a, a, a hope for the resurrection of the dead, just like me. The only difference is I believe the resurrection, that age has already begun in Jesus. What he's saying is that that's not a matter of Roman law. I haven't broken any Roman laws. It's a disagreement among us as Jews over who Jesus actually is. And he says about desecrating the temple, the guys who accuse me, they're not even here. That happened, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. There were some Jews from Ephesus who said Paul had brought a Gentile into these sacred temple courts, which Paul didn't do. And he's saying, where are the witnesses? The guys, these Asian Jews are the ones who accused me, and they're not here. So you've got no proof 
that I've done any of these things at all. The only point of contention was when I was in the Sanhedrin, I said, I'm here for the resurrection of the dead. That's it. That's the only point of contention is whether the resurrection age has actually begun. So here's Felix's verdict. Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give Paul some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So that's a formal word, adjourned. It means uh, that Paul, that Felix refused to pass judgment until he can get further information. So what you have with Felix is he's trying to kind of split the baby. He's trying to make both. He recognizes there's nothing. Paul hasn't done anything wrong. He's not guilty of anything, but he's not willing to let him go because he doesn't want to tick off the Jews, especially these really high-ranking Jews who can cause trouble for him and who have been causing trouble for him for the past couple of years. So his solution is to say, we'll just call a timeout. I'm going to wait for this guy Lysias to come and we get more evidence from him. He already has everything from Lysias. Lysias is the commander who sent Paul to Caesarea and he sent him with a note. He sent him with a letter and said, here are the charges. And what Lysias said is he hasn't done anything wrong and he's not guilty. He's not guilty of any crimes worth imprisonment and definitely not any crimes worth dying for. He already knows what Lysias is going to say. There's no indication that Lysias ever comes. It's just a delay tactic from Felix to keep the Jewish leadership happy. He puts Paul under maybe we call it like house arrest. He's got some level of freedom. I don't know how much. He has some level of freedom. And he's there for two years. He's there for two years until Felix is removed. During that time, Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, come to Paul. Paul preaches to them. Felix is convicted. And rather than responding to that conviction, he says, well, I'm, I don't want to hear any, I don't want to hear anything else. He's afraid of what Paul is saying about judgment and his own um, condition relative to that judgment. And again, rather than pressing into that, he pulls back. But there's enough of a draw that he continues to see Paul. Bribery was normal but not accepted. So he was looking for Paul to pay him off. Paul never does. And again, he sits there uh, for two years. We don't know what Paul does during that time. He's two years that are basically lost to us uh, when Paul is in prison in Caesarea. And then this new guy, Festus, that may be a name for some of you who are considering children. Here's what Festus does. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented their charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. To be clear, what's going on is, so Festus, after he's installed, goes to Jerusalem. That had caused a lot of trouble for Felix. It was um, 
It was the religious center of the province, although it was Jewish. The Romans obviously weren't Jewish, but it's where all the religious activity happened. So it would make sense for him to go and visit that place. And he's inexperienced as a leader. And so the Jews see an opportunity. Hey, maybe we can get this guy to do us a favor, to bring Paul, to transfer Paul, then we can kill him along on the way. Festus doesn't seem to be aware of any of that. He just says, well, Caesarea is the capital. That's where I live and it's where I rule. Paul's already there. It doesn't make any sense. For me to send him to Jerusalem. So he denies their request. After spending eight or ten days with them in Jerusalem, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. So Exact same deal. They bring these charges, but there's no proof. It's he said, they said. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on those charges? So that makes no sense. He's just had Paul stand before him now. There's no difference between Caesarea and Jerusalem in terms of what these guys are going to say. He's just trying to appease the Jews again because they caused so, so many problems for Felix. So this is all just to placate them. And he says, Paul, how about if we go down there? And I think what Paul is feeling at this moment is pretty uneasy. Felix was not a good man, but he was an experienced leader and he wasn't pushed around by the Jews. Festus is inexperienced. And I think Paul is wondering if, if he's about to get manipulated. Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself very well know. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you will go. So that's a formal uh, process. A A Roman could say that. Paul's a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, he could say... I appeal to Caesar, and it's automatic at that point that his case gets kicked all the way up to the highest level. He's saying, I want the emperor to weigh in. And Festus has to honor that because Paul is a Roman citizen. And the reason Paul says that is because, again, he doesn't trust Festus at that point. He's saying, "You, you know I haven't done anything wrong, so why are you sending me back to Jerusalem? That doesn't make any sense. He knows what these guys are intending for him. And so he plays the only card at his disposal, which is, I'm going to take matters out of your hands, Festus, and put them in the hands of the emperor, who at this point, it's the guy named Nero, who you probably have heard of. He said, I'm putting my fate in his hands, not in yours. And again, Festus has to honor that, and we'll see how that plays out over the next couple of weeks. Last week, when Paul was, had just been rescued from the Sanhedrin where they're trying to rip him apart, Jesus appears to Paul and says, as you, as you have testified uh, before me in Jerusalem, so you will in Rome. And this is the mechanism that God uses to get Paul to Rome. He's, in, he's, he's a missionary. God continues to send him. Now he's not going anywhere of his own free will. He's going where these authorities are sending him, but God is continuing to fulfill his word to Paul. It's pretty amazing. We'll look at that more in a couple of weeks when we step back and look at Paul's life as a whole. The way when he has 10 years of freedom, 
where he's led by the Spirit to all dozens of different cities. And then he has multiple years where he's really in captivity, and God continues to lead him, even when he's in captivity, to the exact places God wants him to go. Three days after he becomes a Christian, God speaks to Paul through this prophet Ananias. You're going to preach before Jews, which he's done, before Gentiles, which he's done, and before the kings of Gentiles, which he is in the process of doing. And it's amazing to see the way God can fulfill all of those things, whether Paul is free or he's in chains. And again, well, it's just the faithfulness and the majesty of God, and we'll look at that more in the coming weeks. This week, what I want to look at is this one sentence, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I think about that. What does that look like to say, that's what I strive for. That's my goal in life is to have a clear conscience before God and a clear conscience before others. Your conscience, and you all have one, your conscience is your internal sense of right and wrong. The old cartoons, it's an angel and a demon on each shoulder. That's the, that's the picture of your conscience. It's the internal voice between the internal sense of right and wrong. And for Paul to say my conscience is clear before God, what he's saying is I've been faithful. I've been obedient. He's not saying I'm sinless. Paul, he wasn't. He was a man just like us, and he sinned. He's not saying I've been sinless. He's saying I've been responsive. The things that God has put in front of me, I've done. And if there are places where I've missed the mark, I've responded to the correction of the Holy Spirit. My conscience is clear. I don't feel any guilt in terms of what God has asked me to do. I've, I've accomplished all of those things. And the same thing when it comes to other people. I've given everything I've got. When he was leaving the Ephesian elders, he said, anything that I knew, I didn't hesitate to preach anything that would be helpful to you. I gave you everything that I had. And throughout his letters, he makes a, a point to say, I, I didn't want to be a stumbling block. I didn't want to be a burden. I didn't want to make, do anything that would make it difficult for y'all to respond to Jesus. And I wanted to give you anything I had that would help you respond to Jesus. So, so my conscience is clear. I didn't get in the way. And I did encourage you on. Does that make sense? And so that's what my conscience is clear vertically and horizontally. And that's the goal for us. Everyone has a conscience, Christian or not. That's part of what it means to be uh, created in the image of God. All the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Everyone is born with with an innate sense of right and wrong. It's one of the things that distinguishes us from animals. Animals don't have a conscience. There is no right and wrong for animals. They're driven by instinct. We're not. We have a conscience. That helps us know what's right and wrong. But just because we have a conscience doesn't mean our conscience is a reliable guide to true righteousness. So uh, easy example. There are terrorists in the world and they blow things up and they kill people. And from my understanding, they do it with a clean conscience. They're not violating their conscience, even though they're sinning. You can honor your conscience and yet still sin. Those guys who are doing those things, we would say you're sinning, you're killing people, you're committing these atrocious acts of violence. In their mind, they would say, well, I'm honoring my conscience. I feel clean before God. And we would say you've missed it completely. They have not violated their conscience, and yet they are sinning. Everyone has a conscience, but just because you're honoring yours doesn't mean that you're following uh, God's understanding of what righteousness is. But, or and maybe, every time you violate your conscience, you are sinning, even if the behavior you're engaging in is not sinful. Every time you violate your conscience, you are sinning, even if the behavior you're engaging in is not sinful. 
Back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, there was a huge uh, branch of the Christian church that thought it was a sin to dance. That's what they thought. And if you're part of that group, I'm a fringe member of that group for multiple reasons. If you believe it's a sin to dance and you dance, you're violating your conscience. It's a sin for you. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to dance. The Bible actually commands us to dance uh, in Psalms before him. But, so it's not a sin. Some dancing absolutely is. It's sexually uh, ex- explicit and all of those things. But there's plenty. The, no, the box step is fine. Like, you can do those things. <laughs> 18 inches apart. It's fine to do that. You're not sinning. But if in your own heart you have conviction about that, you are. Does that make sense? So you can't, every time you violate your conscience, you are sinning, even if the behavior is not sinful. Romans fourteen twenty three says anything that comes from faith or anything that does not come from faith is a sin. Uh, some, of, some people would say R-rated movies are sinful. So for them to see an R-rated movie, it's a sin, even though that God doesn't care about the letter the Motion Picture Association of America puts on a movie. He cares absolutely about the content. And there's plenty of things that are PG and PG-13 that he would say, that's sinful. That's not doing anything good for you. It's not the letter. It's the content. But for you, if you have a conviction, my conscience says I, I, no R-rated movies, and you watch one, then for you, you're sinning. You're violating your conscience, which is always a sin. So everyone has a conscience, Christian or not. Your conscience conforms to your sense of values, not necessarily the Lord's. So it's not necessarily a guide in terms of what God would have you do. You can honor your own conscience and still sin. It's the terrorist example. Every time you violate your conscience, you are sinning, even if what you're doing is not sinful. So your conscience is a gift from God to you. And you want to learn how to listen to it. If you think about the like your nerve endings, your, the pain sensors in your body. You touch something hot, you feel that pain. Pain is actually a gift from God. It lets us know something's wrong. Take your hand away. If you leave your hand on the burner, you're going to lose your hand. There are people who can't feel pain. And on some level we say, well, wouldn't that be great? It would actually be terrible. If you read about people who have that medical condition where they can't feel pain, things do not go well for them in life. Pain is a gift in a lot of ways to let us know something is wrong. Change your behavior. Your conscience is the spiritual parallel of those pain sensors. It's the place where you're going to feel sin. There's, it's, it's guilt or it's shame. It's the place where you're, you're actually going to feel, I messed up. I missed the mark. You want to cultivate that. It's a gift from God to you to let you know you've moved in a, in a bad direction. You don't want to ignore your conscience. You want to honor it. If you're a Christian, you, your conscience uh, is, is renewed when you say yes to Jesus. Everyone's con- Again, everyone has a conscience, just like your mind has been affected by the fall and your emotions and your body. So has your conscience. And when you become a Christian, your conscience is restored in some ways. It's still not perfect, but it's restored and you want, your, you, you, you want to grow. As you grow in your faith, you want your conscience to move from weak to strong. For most of you who've said yes to Jesus, you did so because you felt guilty for your sins. At some point, you recognize the weight of your sinfulness, and you realize, I can't pay that debt. I can't climb that mountain. I need some help. 
And somebody told you about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection said, he'll pay the debt for you. And you said, I'm sold. That, yes, I'm in. You felt guilt. And for many of us, particularly if you became a Christian, maybe in your teenage years, we can tend to swing a little bit. We become Christians and then we start looking at all of the things that we would see as sinful and say, we're not going to do those things anymore. In my day, we all broke our CDs of secular music. A CD is this disc and you have music. You could burn tracks to it. Now you would delete your playlist, which is much less dramatic than breaking your CDs. But something like this is secular music and we're, all secular music is bad. Or we would do those things. Or maybe you did those things. Paul talks about people like that and says your conscience is weak. He talks about people who are concerned about where food comes from. Where did this food come from? Could it have been used in a temple at some point, in a temple service? If so, that makes this food bad. And Paul would say, no, all the food's fine. But if your conscience is weak and you're concerned about where it came from, then you don't need to eat any of that meat. Secular music's okay. Some of it's terrible, some of it's not. Again, it's, it's content. It's not label. And he would say, but if for you, if it's all bad, then, you're con- then stay away from it. It's a weak conscience. Don't hear that as criticism. It's a starting place for all of us. And we want our consciences to grow stronger and stronger. We want to recognize what sin truly is. Anything that leads us to independence from God, any area we're asserting our own will, our own authority over and against God, that's sin. And it begins in our heart. And as you grow, as your conscience is informed by the Bible, reason 74 to read the Bible, that's how your conscience is informed. That's how you begin to rely on your conscience as it as you align yourself more and more with the values you see in the Bible. Then your conscience can be a more reliable guide to how God would have you act. Your conscience grows stronger. And at the same time as it grows stronger, it also grows more sensitive, I hope. The conscience, it's like your spiritual ear. It's the place the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you about your behavior. And you want that to become more and more sensitive. God's always speaking. It's almost always in a still, small voice. And many of us, we just miss it. And so again, particularly if you're a Christian here today, your conscience has been renewed by your faith in Jesus It's not perfect yet. And so you want to inform your conscience through the reading of the word. It's the best place to do that. And as you do, your conscience will grow stronger, which results in more freedom for you. There's more freedom. There's less rules because you begin to realize what sin truly is. You, Jesus was accused of being a, a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet he never sinned. He engaged fully in the, with the world and yet never sinned. That's having a strong conscience. It's recognizing what sin truly is. What are the things you truly need to stay away from? What does it look like for you to engage with people who are sinful in and of themselves and yet not sinning? That's a strong conscience. And as you spend time in the Word, your conscience again will be formed and it will become stronger and stronger. And you'll recognize there's really only two, two rules. There's loving God and loving other people. You don't need the 613 laws from the Old Testament anymore. You've got the two. And as your, as your conscience becomes stronger, it'll also become more sensitive. You'll become more sensitive to the way the Holy Spirit would lead you. So what does this look like in the life of a Christian? Here's how a conscience functions. It's a great graphic. Very well done artistically. So you're on the left. You're a Christian. And you're blue. And the Holy Spirit lives within you. And so does the Bible. Those things, the word of God, those things are dwelling within you. 
But at times you're going to sin. We all do. Everybody sins except Jesus. And so we miss the mark. Think of sin as missing the mark. There's something God puts in front of me and I walk away. There's things that I know the Lord doesn't have for me and I engage in them anyway. That's a sin of commission and a sin of omission. Not doing something that God would lead me to do. That's a sin of omission. Doing something God would lead me away from. That's a sin of commission. And I sin against God and against other people. I miss the mark and so do you. So that's going to happen. And when you miss the mark, the Holy Spirit within you will convict you of sin. He's declaring you guilty. You did it. You missed the mark. You danced too close to her or whatever. That's the sense of conviction that you're going to feel. There's always a mental awareness. The Holy Spirit never convicts you generally. You hear that. Condemnation is different. It's always vague because it's from the devil. Conviction is always specific because what God is looking for is confession and repentance. And you can't repent in general. You can only repent specifically. So there's always a mental awareness. You look back and go, oh, I can't believe it. Whether it's gossip, whether it's pornography, whether it's disobeying your parents, whether it's cheating on your taxes, whether it's stepping over someone who's poor, whatever those things are, he convicts you of your sin. And then you have a choice. What am I going to do? And this is where everything, this is it. This is the hinge point. You're going to sin. Lock it up. The Holy Spirit is going to convince you. You can count or convict you. You can count on it. Then how do you respond? This is the choice in front of you. You can accept his conviction or you can reject it. We just read about someone who rejected it. That was Felix. Paul is preaching about salvation. He's preaching preaching about judgment. He's preaching about righteousness. He's preaching about self-control. And Felix feels convicted and his response is, I'm afraid I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'll sin for you when it's convenient. Two years of that kind of cat and mouse. He rejects or he resists the conviction. He's not a Christian at this point. The Holy Spirit convicts those who are not yet. The Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and guilt and righteousness. That's what led every one of you who said yes to Jesus did so because the Holy Spirit convicted you of your need for him. Felix is being convicted of his need for Jesus. And rather than responding through confession and repentance, he resists. So for us, Christian or non, you have an opportunity. When you're convicted, when you feel that in your heart, always mental awareness, almost always emotional response as well. You feel guilty. You feel shame. You feel unsettled. You feel like relationally there's something between us. You feel bad towards another person. All of those emotions, that's good and right. That's a gift from God to say, you're guilty. Take note of those things. They're intended to lead you to repentance. If you accept the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you submit to that, then you confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You repent, you turn away from that sin and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. You experience freedom from that sin and restored relationship with God and other people. That's the way it's supposed to work. We're convicted To lead to restored relationship. 
We've missed the mark. We've damaged relationship either vertically or horizontally. We're convicted of that behavior in order to restore relationship vertically and horizontally. It's the way it's supposed to work. But all of us at times resist for whatever reason. Because we're proud, because we enjoy the sinful behavior, whatever those reasons are. We resist conviction. The Holy Spirit, there's pain and we choose to ignore it. And then when you ignore it, your only choice is to justify your behavior. It's called cognitive dissonance. You can't live with two competing belief systems for long. You've got to bring them together. And so if what you're experiencing is conviction for your sin and yet you want to continue in that sin, something's got to give. So people either ignore the voice of God or they justify their sin. And usually it's both. I'm going to align. I'm going to paint. I'm going to paint my sin, color my sin in such a way that it's okay. I'm going to say, well, everybody's doing it or it's not as bad as what she's doing or it's not like I killed anybody or however we do those things. You see it all the time. And then over time, that persistent resistance leads to a seared conscience. And that is so dangerous when your conscience is dead. It's no longer functioning the way God intends. He's given you this gift to feel pain internally when you sin. And if you so ignore the voice of God, if you so ignore that feeling of conviction because you're like Felix and you're afraid or because it makes you uncomfortable or because you don't want to change or for whatever reason, over time what that leads to is a seared conscience where you can't feel guilt anymore about anything. Is it in Jeremiah? I can't remember. Maybe Ezekiel, where the prophet says, these guys can't even blush anymore. That's how hard their hearts have become. That's how callous they've become to my voice. They can't even blush. That's not good. And we get there. I see that with people who've been in long-term affairs. The only way that you can deal with the cognitive dissonance of cheating on your spouse and saying on some level that you're a Christian is to justify it one way or the other. To say, well, he or she drove me to it or God wants me to be happy and this is my soulmate or whatever. But the conscience becomes so hard, even when people are caught, there's not repentance. It takes time for their conscience to reawaken so they can actually feel the weight of their sin. You do not want to get there. You, want, you don't want to keep your hand on the stove. That internal sense of conviction is a gift from you to say, turn in another direction. If your conscience is seared, you're probably not sitting in the room. But if it is, there's always hope. There's hope till you die. There's always a chance. All you have to do is ask the Lord, awaken my conscience. Stir me again. I want to feel again, even the weight of my sin. Some of you are thinking about people in your own life who you love and you're saying they're so far. They're gone. They're not until they're dead. Pray over the next six weeks that God would stir a hunger in them of their sin. Some of you have teenagers or students in college or young adult children. You're going, they're gone. Pray for them to get caught. Absolutely. Pray that God would bring the consequences of their sin home to them, not for their pain, Not to humiliate them, but to hopefully draw them back to promote healing and to draw them back into relationship with him. So that's the the point that we all face. Let me close with this. How's your conscience this morning? Is it clear? Some of you would say yes, and you don't need to feel guilty about that. You're not saying you're perfect, 
You're just saying right now on March 5th, 2017, you feel good before the Lord. The things he's putting in front of you, you're doing. When it comes to other people, you're not a stumbling block to other people and you're helping people grow. And whatever it looks like that, whatever that looks like for them. Seared, we just talked about that. Condemned, super common in the church. The enemy takes a good thing, conviction, and twists it into a bad thing, condemnation. You're convicted for specific sins that are meant to lead you to repentance. But what the enemy does, he takes advantage of that God-given conviction, and he causes you to feel this general sense of condemnation. I'm not good enough. i got to sit at the kids' table for the rest of my life, or outside, or the back of the bus, however you want to say that. I'm forgiven, but not fully. God had to do it. I'm restored, but not completely. You've got the scarlet A on your chest, at least the outline of it. That's from the devil. It's not from the Lord. God says he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He blots our sins out. He doesn't erase them with the, where you can still see the writing, even though it's faint. He blots them out, completely gone. Do you, would you say this morning your conscience is condemned? neglected. When was the last time you prayed Psalm 139, 24, and 25? God, search me and know me. Many of us live so fast, we never take time to examine our own hearts. We feel like, I'm not doing anything too bad if I was, God would convict me. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. But why wait until you run into a tree? Like, ask him. You know, it's not morbid introspection. introspection. Maybe once a week. God, show me my heart. Test me. Show me my anxious ways. Let me know what's going on in here. I recognize I can deceive myself. I can justify myself. I can lie to myself. I can't see the lettuce in my own teeth. So would you search my heart? Or is your conscience neglected? Is your conscience weak? Do you feel bound by shoulds and oughts and rules? Do you feel like you're walking on this tightrope? And if you lean too far one way or the other, you're falling into the pit of hell. And God is just waiting for you to do that. You feel this constant sense, do more, do more, do more. Is your conscience weak in that sense? There's, there's no freedom in your life. You don't enjoy. You don't enjoy your relationship with the Lord. It's a burden to you that you're trying to carry. You feel like there's all kinds of rules and you can't keep up with all of them. When you think about Jesus, again, being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, all you can think about is all the ways that that would make things more difficult or all of the ways that would cause you to mess up. Is your conscience weak this morning? We're going to take communion. And as we do, I want you to recognize that this, like this is our reminder. It's our reminder, Hebrews 9, 14, conscience is clean. That's it. That's what cleanses your conscience. If you're feeling guilt, the solution is not to do better. It's not to apologize more. It's not to, it, the, the solution is to receive forgiveness from God. Jesus' death and his resurrection makes your conscience clean. Whether you're someone who's never said yes to Jesus and you feel like I've got a pile of sins or you're someone who has said yes to Jesus, but you continue to struggle with a particular sinful behavior or pattern. This reminds you, His forgiveness is for you. 
For those of you who wrestle with the idea of being condemned, this reminds you that his forgiveness is sufficient. His blood is sufficient. It comes to blot it out. Your sin was not so egregious or not so long-standing that the blood of God could not cover it. It does completely and fully. This reminds you that even when you pray, God, search me and know me, you don't have to be afraid of what's going to come up. Because he's already dealt with it on the cross and he gives you his spirit to empower you to live a life of obedience moving forward. If your conscience is weak and you're so afraid of falling off the tightrope, this again reminds you the gift of his spirit who lives within you. The law is now written on your heart. You don't have to learn all 613 laws. You just have to discern the voice of God in your heart and commit to being faithful in the places where you miss the mark and you're going to miss the mark to confess and repent and trust him to restore you. So let's pray for a minute. Those of you who would say, and I think it's probably many in the room, and, and we don't do it as a church. It's not part of our rhythm for sure. If you would say, I, mean, I can't even remember me, and you just ask God that question right now. Make that request. God, search me and know me. He may bring faces to mind that you need to forgive. Relationships that need to be mended. He may bring things up that you would say, I don't know if that's a sin, but maybe for you it is. Maybe for the things that he's calling you to, you're engaging in some behavior or maybe more likely not engaging in certain things that he's put in front of you. He's spoken to you and you, for whatever reason, have yet to fully implement obedience. Just ask him to search your heart and know you. He's not going to give you a list of 37 things. He's going to give you one or two. He's not looking to overwhelm you with your sinfulness. He's looking to lead you to healing. If you would say this morning, I've never said yes to Jesus, well, let today be the day. If you're going, I don't even feel a need, though, then maybe ask the Lord, God, I want to feel the weight of my sin. If this is all real, if I truly am a sinner, if I truly am under condemnation, I want to feel the weight of that. Knowing that he's already made provision for your forgiveness. If you're bound up, conscience is weak, ask the Lord to set you free. As you come forward and take communion and physically eat this bread dipped in juice, would you ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit again? To give you confidence in your identity as a son or a daughter. If you would say your conscience is clear, then come forward and rejoice. Thankful for what the, that the Lord has done that for you. So, Holy Spirit, come. For the 180 people or whoever we've got in here, there's 180 hearts. And each one is individual and unique, and you know what each one of us needs. God, I thank you for giving us the gift of a conscience. And Lord, I pray that we would know how to honor that gift moving forward. And I pray that in these couple of minutes as we take communion, that we would all, when we walk out of here today, say, my conscience is clear before God and before others. It's strong.